morning. He is risen. Indeed, yes. All right, our scripture reading this morning, it is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 to 20a. It's the first part of verse 20. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 961. So it's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 20a, page 961 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, everyone. Good to see you all. It's like the best day of the year. He is risen. Yeah. All right. Because, you know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're really just, we, we really should just be enjoying a good brunch this morning. Um, why spend time like this if this isn't true? Um, if it isn't true, if he didn't rise from the dead, then we might as well just eat and drink because tomorrow we die. There's no hope. But if he did rise, then we have a lot to celebrate and a lot to be thrilled about and thankful for and to praise him for. So uh, we got lots of reasons to be here this morning. All right, so we're going to actually look at the resurrection account, the crucifixion and the resurrection um, this morning from the gospel according to Luke. So if you want to turn in your Bible, we had a short scripture reading because we're going to have a long sermon text, not because we're going to walk through it you know, verse by verse. We are going to read through the whole section, and that's intentional because I think sometimes we can kind of take it in pieces, but it's a story. It's an historical account. And so let's enjoy reading this and getting caught up in the story um, and we're going to start with the crucifixion because you can't separate the two. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval on all that Jesus did on the cross. So if there's no cross, you wouldn't need a resurrection. But if Jesus stayed in the grave, then everything that he said is worthless. So they can't be separated. They've got to be held together. So... Everything that the resurrection says is everything that the cross says. Um, it gives that stamp of approval, that big exclamation point. So we're going to start at Luke 23, beginning in verse 32, actually, since that's the beginning of the paragraph. Paragraph. We'll start there. So it's on page 884. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can find one there, um, page 884. And we're going to go ahead and just read through to the end of the book. And basically, let's hear it as the historical account that it is. This is the most significant moment in human history. What's represented here is literally, not 
hyperbole for the sake of a sermon. This is literally the most significant moment in human history. And after we read through this, then we're going to, in a sense, take a little bit of a walking tour and stop at five different places um, and drill in a little bit to what's there and see what we can see. All right? So Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from a distance, followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there, there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they, were still dis while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate, ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures 
and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is God's word. All right. So there's way more here, obviously, than we could unpack, but we're going to stop and consider five important themes in these verses. Irony, mercy, reliability, what the Bible's all about, and the mission, okay? So what do we see in the story of stories? First, we see irony. So look back at 2335. You see how Jesus is scoffed at. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. And then the soldiers mock him. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then even the criminal, one of the criminals, railed at him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So, you see the irony? The one who can't save himself can and will save others. So this is not the cant of inability or weakness. It's the cant of incompatible options. The only way that he could save others was by not saving himself. So what they took to be a reason to mock him and dismiss his claims, he was actually fulfilling his claims. He was claiming to be the savior of the world, to save people from their sins, and the only way that could happen with cosmic justice was for him to give himself, not save himself. So here I said cosmic justice. What does that mean? Well, think about it this way. Isn't there something deep inside you that longs for, that cries out for the wrongs of this world to be righted. There's plenty of it to be grieving over or angry over in our world today. So much is broken, as was mentioned earlier. We have the expression in English, he got away with murder. Now, some people actually do get away with murder, but the expression obviously means that they get away with a whole lot without having to pay for it. There's no reckoning. So have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that keenly maybe when someone has sinned grievously against you or someone sinned against a loved one in a really ugly way? Obviously, we can watch it happen all over the place in business and politics or sports or whatever. Well, if there's no God... I can imagine that getting vengeance makes a whole lot more sense because there's no cosmic justice. If you want it, you're going to have to take it yourself, make it happen because there's no cosmic reckoning. Some people get away with murder. Some people get murdered. Tough luck for the latter. 
But there is a God. And that God is good all the way through. He's good and he's perfectly just. No one is going to get away with anything in this universe, ultimately. So is that good news? Our hearts kind of cry out for this justice, right? So is that good news? Yes and no, right? So we want all the bad people to get their comeuppance, right? Except which camp are you in? The good people camp or the bad people camp? If the standard is Hitler, then, you know, we can all feel pretty good. But if the standard is God and his good and holy law, then I'm sorry. I'm toast. I don't know about you. If you just think Ten Commandments, it doesn't take long before we've, I mean, I think we've broken them all, right? Or Jesus summed up the law with love God with all your heart, like all you are. And love your neighbor as yourself. We're all in trouble. We're going to be condemned. As the Bible says, there's none righteous, no, not one. It was the self-righteous Pharisee, the religious folks, that Jesus had the sharpest rebukes for. People that thought they were in the good category rather than the bad category. So we're in trouble, but... It's Resurrection Sunday. We just celebrated Good Friday. So this unswervingly just judge is also this wonderfully merciful, loving father. And he planned a way to satisfy both his perfect justice and his superabundant grace and love. And it's by means of a substitute, a perfect substitute. That substitute had to be human if he's going to take our place. But that substitute had to be divine because humanity in total was broken, guilty. No mere human being could be a perfect substitute. No mere human being could absorb the full penalty of our guilt, the guilt of humanity. So God so loved this world that he sent, that he gave his only son. And there's only two options. Either he saves himself and we are all lost or he dies in our place, and we can be saved. So if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, he could not save himself. So if you can see the irony here, you can actually see the gospel here in this section. More irony. We won't go into this, but he's mocked as the king of kings, or king of, king of the Jews, I'm sorry. So you're a king, right? Right, yeah, you're a king. And yet he is a king, and not just a king. He's the king of kings. There's also irony in the power of his weakness. So an effective savior can't be weak and powerless against his enemies, right? Like defeated and conquered by his enemies. How can a victorious king be conquered and killed? But again, there's irony because what looked like failure and tragedy and evidence of defeat through weakness and death and defeat and loss and what seemed like game over, it's the most powerful victory ever won on earth. Irony of ironies. So the first thing we see is irony. Next, we see mercy. Look at verse 33. 
When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We haven't read what came before this, but Jesus was wronged and sinned against in all kinds of ugly ways. What happens when that happens to you? You want justice. You want that person to pay. You don't want people to get away with anything. I mean, how do you react if somebody cuts you off in traffic, let alone something really serious? And here is the most exalted being in the universe who's gone through this incredible injustice and shame and disgrace. He's been betrayed by one of his associates. His friends have all abandoned him to save their skin. One of the ones closest to him denied even knowing him. He was condescended to by thug soldiers, mocked and spit upon, punched in the face, denied justice by a kangaroo court, basically lynched by a mob. And how does he respond? With mercy. I mean, what kind of man is this? Well, for one, he's a man that practices what he preaches. Back in chapter 6 of Luke's gospel, he taught, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Oh, easy for you to say. Or how about putting your money where your mouth is? Well, he does. This is a beautiful picture of his mercy. You know, do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. It's God in the flesh. What do you see? Mercy. It was once stated in a PBS television series that Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. And all for mercy's sake. But there's a ton more mercy here. Look, look now at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other one rebukes him, knowing that his sentence is just. And then he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, isn't that crazy? <laughs> like, what is that criminal thinking? Have you ever thought about this? What does he think is going to happen? Jesus is going to, like, jump down from the cross or one of those, like, 11th hour rescues, you know, in a movie where somebody's about to be executed and their friend comes in on the horse and, you know, shoots the arrow or something. And, like, is that what he's expecting? How is this dying man going to have any great power to remember this criminal? I mean, if you were actually standing there and you heard this, wouldn't you have probably laughed? I mean, this is either delirium, insanity, or something just off the charts amazing. This criminal is basically saying, Jesus, remember me when you assume your throne. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. <laughs> like, he's saying, I believe that you're the king of the Jews and the Messiah, and I want to be with you. So, again, I, I think we would have just laughed it off. But we know how it turns out. This criminal was the first one to see and believe that Jesus' enthronement was happening 
on the cross. So again, what seemed like utter foolish weakness was really earth-shaking power. So stop for a second and just ponder that last sentence of Jesus. Today, here's this dying man on a cross saying to another dying man on a cross, he's promising him, today you will be with me in paradise. I have this authority. I can do this. I will do this. That's crazy. It's either crazy insane or it's crazy wonderful. I mean, do you see the incredible mercy of God that's here? Sovereign mercy. I mean, here is the hound of heaven who came to seek and save that which was lost, seeking and saving a wretched sinner while dying, the very death that would purchase paradise for all of us wretched sinners. So in the midst of this most excruciating moment, Jesus is still thinking of other people. He's thinking of this dying thief beside him, and he's having mercy. Of course he was, (laughs) because this is all about the gospel. I love this quote by Spurgeon. He said, it's a famous preacher in London back in the 1800s, surely if anything beyond faith is needed to make us fit into I'm sorry, fit to enter paradise, the thief would have been kept a little longer here. But no, he is in the morning in the state of nature, in his sin. At noon, he enters the state of grace. And by sunset, he's in the state of glory. Can you measure the change from that sinner, loathsome in his iniquity, when the sun was high at noon to that same sinner clothed in pure white, and accepted by Christ in the paradise of God when the sun went down. So the mercy of God is just shining forth from the cross. He's on the cross to purchase mercy for the whole world. And just to make it really clear what he's doing, he just gives you a little picture of it right there before he dies. He picks the unlikeliest of companions to accompany him into paradise because it was a picture of what he was doing. Again, it's not the only revelation of mercy in this passage. Look at verse 44. It was now the sixth hour. We don't regard time this way, so what time is that? Noon. So high noon, and there was darkness. It's supposed to be really bright at noon, so something's going on here. Darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock, while the sun's light failed. So there's mercy revealed in what's going on in the skies right here. So Jesus hung on the cross roughly between noon and three. Darkness fell over the land. This is not some kind of coincidental solar eclipse, okay? Because this was Passover time, and it always took place during the full moon. And eclipses only happen during a new moon. So this is a sign, supernatural sign. Darkness signifying that a cosmic price was being paid, not just a local criminal price. So darkness in the Bible oftentimes represents the judgment of God. What was the ninth plague before the firstborn was killed? Remember Exodus and the ten plagues, the last one before The firstborn was darkness, right? Darkness and then deliverance. 
So here, the wrath and judgment of God is just and holy. Righteous opposition to evil. That's what his wrath is. We're all deserving of eternal condemnation. Even though we're finite, we've sinned against an infinite God. Our pen- penalty is infinite. It's one we can't pay. So this darkness actually means that Jesus was enduring the equivalent of eternal hell for everyone who would ever believe. Can you even begin to wrap your mind around what penalty he was absorbing in those three hours? That's why he stumbled in the Garden of Gethsemane, not because of the the whip or the nails. What was happening, he was accomplishing, big Bible word here, propitiation. So in ancient times, people would try to propitiate the gods, appease them, get on their good side. Because, you know, their wrath was unpredictable. Sometimes gods woke up on the wrong side of the bed, you know, and you've got to, you know, feed them and do things to make them happy so that they'll bless your business and, you know, give you crops and, and fertility and whatever. But the true God is not like those pagan gods. Instead of us trying to propitiate the gods, he actually propitiated his own wrath. He actually satisfies his own wrath by spending it on his son. Jesus absorbed it in himself, in our place. That is mercy. And it's not coincidental, again, that the description of that darkness is followed by the statement about the curtain of the temple. See it in verse 45. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So again, a little walking tour here through. We stop here. What's up with the curtain? The curtain is the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place was the place where God dwelt with his people. It was the footstool of his, of his throne, in a sense. It's the place where heaven and earth met, where God dwelt with his people. And in that room, do you remember what was in there? Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark, the Ten Commandments. Because if God is going to rule over his people, he does so by his word, by his law. But the problem is they haven't kept that law. They've broken that law. So how is he going to dwell with his people? Well, on top of that ark, do you know what the top of it was called? The mercy seat. Now, it's not that God was sitting on top of the ark. It's used mercy seat in the way that we talk about, like the county seat. Do you know what a county seat is? It's the governmental center of a county. So guess what? The mercy seat, that's called mercy central. That's what's going on on top of the Ark of the Covenant. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to enter into the most holy place and make atonement for the people. How did he do that? He sprinkled blood. The death of an animal was a symbolic stand and a substitute for sinners so that God could dwell with his people, so that they could be in relationship. It's the only way. If atonement was made and their sin covered. So Jesus dies, and the curtain of the temple, which was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and like a handbreadth wide, by the way, 
So this wasn't like the disciples, you know, going stealth like ninja style and, you know, with a, with a carpet knife trying to do. No, like they couldn't have done that if they wanted to, and they didn't even believe. They thought it was over. This is God tearing the temple, temple curtain from top to bottom. Also that we can experience mercy. No longer is the very presence of God reserved for a select few, and that with fear and trembling. Open and free access to God's very presence is what this is all about. Mercy central <laughs> through Jesus. Now, obviously, all of what we're talking about here is only good, only good news if it's actually true. If it's a fairy tale, if it's a legend, then you know what we're doing this morning? We're just popping religious placebo pills. And, you know, let's hope we feel better. But let's just look now at a few of the evidences that there's reliability here in this record, okay? So third point, reliability. Look there in 2355. It says that the women followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, but it was the Sabbath, you know, so Jesus died on Friday. It's the Sabbath, so they had to rest day two. They'd have to wait till Sunday morning, day three, to prepare the body with the spices and the ointments. So chapter 24 opens with the women heading off to honor their dead rabbi. But then they find the stone rolled away and angels declaring that Jesus was risen. So look at verse 8. They remembered his words, this is the women, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The twelve minus Judas, because he'd killed himself. What's remarkable here is that the first witnesses of the resurrection, the first ones to tell the news, were women. That might not strike us at all as odd today. Okay, but in the first century, the testimony of women wasn't typically admissible evidence in either Jewish or Roman courts. So the witness of women was avoided whenever possible. Their word would have automatically been viewed with suspicion. So here's the point. If you're trying to create a religion or, you know, write a bit of propaganda, this is not the way to go about it. There's literally nothing to gain. Everything to lose if you do it this way, unless this is actually just what happened. So this is actually strong evidence for the historicity and the reliability of the gospel accounts. It's also beautiful evidence of the honor that our God gives, bestows on women. God decided that women would be the first witnesses of the resurrection, and he didn't care that it would make the story less credible in some people's eyes. So here these women run back, report to the others. Look at how their news was received. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them apostles, an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. So the disciples had given up. They thought their hopes were dashed. They're not waiting with bated breath like, oh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, you know? Can't wait till Sunday. The word for idle tale was actually a medical term for patients speaking in the midst of delirium. Remember, Luke was a doctor, so, you know. 
So the future apostles, at this point, they think the resurrection talk is crazy talk. So again, this is support for reliability, authenticity. This is not best but forward spin. This is not revisionist history to make yourself look good. This is just what happened. I think sometimes critics of the Bible think that the people in this account, you know, they're pre-scientific, therefore they're superstitious and gullible. It's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. It's the attitude that older generations are necessarily less enlightened than us. We are the enlightened. They were obviously in the dark. But it doesn't hold because Jesus' followers didn't believe this would happen. They didn't believe it even when they were told. They thought it was crazy talk. It took seeing the resurrected Christ to change their minds. And many of them died violent deaths as a result of believing this. So Pascal once said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. So if they knew it was a hoax, especially one that they had trumped up, a bunch of propaganda that they were propagating, would, would they die for it? No. So there's lots more reasons to believe this is a reliable record, but we'll leave it there for now. So fourth point as we walk through this account, what the Bible is all about. The Bible is all about Jesus. <laughs> this wonderful, merciful plan of redemption that God has accomplished and is accomplishing. Look at chapter 24, verse 25. So he walks on the road to Emmaus with these guys, talks to them, Here's what they are thinking. And then he says, oh, foolish ones, verse 25, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we could just multiply examples. We could go back into the Old Testament and see example after example after example. But just one example, partly because we've already partially gone over it. Jesus is the true and better temple. The temple was a shadow of what was to come. So Jesus is the true and the better high priest. He's the temple. He is where God meets with man. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. He's the high priest that offers the sacrifice so that we can be reconciled to God, forgiven, cleansed. He's the mercy seat. It's his blood that covers us. I mean, you could just go on and on and on and on. The shadow of the temple, the shadow of the priesthood, the shadow of the blood, all of that points to Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about the mercy that he provides on the cross for us. So again, quote Spurgeon, Jesus leans over me. He puts his finger on the lines. I can see his pierced hands. So imagine reading the Old Testament and imagine Jesus looking over your shoulder and just pointing out the lines 
and you see the lion, you see his pierced hand. I will read it as in his presence. I will read it knowing that he is the substance of it, that he is the proof of this book as well as the writer of it, the sum of scriptures as well as the author of it. This is the way for true students to become wise. You will get to the soul of scripture when you can keep Jesus with you while you are reading. So the Bible is all about Jesus and the wonderful, merciful plan of redemption that God has accomplished and is accomplishing. So how does this good news get spread? How do more people get in on this mercy? Through us. Which leads to the last point, the mission. Look at verse 46. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The Spirit of God poured out at Pentecost and empowering um, his people to be witnesses. So if this is all true, and it is, we can't keep this to ourselves. So through the reliable record of eyewitnesses, we become witnesses of these things. And so first, have you repented and experienced forgiveness of sins that comes only in and through the name of Jesus? Mercy, cleansing, reconciliation, peace with God, a living hope that even when we die, it's not the end. Death doesn't get the last word because Jesus beat the grave and we have a living hope. So that's the first thing is, are you in on this? And then once you're in on this, you've received this gift. We can't keep this to ourselves. Repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. There's other people that need this good news, this forgiveness and cleansing for their guilt and shame, all the good that you have received through Jesus, all the benefit, mercy, blessing, peace, joy, hope, all of that. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, your friends, your family, they need this. So let's go give it to them. Share it. So we're going to close by singing two songs. The first one is just a rehearsal, a simple rehearsal of the profound and yet simple truths of the gospel. And then the second one calls us to wonder and marvel at the greatness of our God's mercy. He's worthy of our worship and praise. And it also is a call to live on mission, sharing this great news so that his glory will fill the earth. All right, let's pray. Father, I 
thank you, praise you, bless your name for your abundant, rich mercy that you've poured out on us through Christ. I pray that we would have eyes to see how rich and wonderful it is. That we would treasure Jesus more. That he would be precious to us. And that we would give to others what is most precious to us. The thing that they most need as well. The one that they most need as well. So help us, Lord, fix our eyes on you, and may we be filled up with gratitude and joy and love for others who need this mercy that we've experienced. In Jesus' name, amen.